All right, so in talking about how we're going to do the sermons and everything, um, it's kind of a weird thing to do in San Francisco, isn't it? We're going to get a group of people together in the middle of San Francisco, and every week we're going to read our Bibles, and we're going to say that we're basing our entire lives off of this book. And so this is what I want to do as a church, right? I want to build our foundation on the scriptures, right? That everything rests on the words of this book. Now, that is not a super popular position to take in North Beach in San Francisco, is it? Um, you've probably heard this in San Francisco. If you've spent any time talking to people uh, and they find out that you're a believer and that you read the Bible, whatever, is people will say things like, well, there's parts of the Bible that I like, but you can't take that stuff literally, right? Has anybody never heard that from somebody? Yeah, I don't think so, right? That's what people say. That's kind of the big thing. Well, there's some stuff, but you can't really read that literally. Or, and I'm very excited about uh, having my own church so I can quote Reddit threads as much as I want, you know? Okay, so here's from a Reddit thread that I, that I came across. Yeah, you, we can do whatever we want, you know? Uh, anyway, <laughs> uh, so this is this guy. They were talking, I don't even remember what the thread was about, but they were talking about somehow religion comes up. And if you've ever spent any time on Reddit and then religion comes up, it's like a whole thing, you know? Okay, so this is what he said. Nothing against religion, but people who truly believe the Bible is the word of God and everything is 100% true are confusing to me. Like I told you that I wrote a book that's entirely second and third hand accounts about events that I wasn't even alive to witness and that you should believe every word of it you'd rightfully laugh in my face. But someone slaps because Jesus on top of it, and suddenly we're not supposed to question it, and, do, and doing so is even considered to be blasphemous by some. He says, I just don't get it. Okay, now, uh, I was going to put his username up there, but his username was filthy, so I left that part blank. <laughs> but this is a very typical um, kind of uh, way to think in America about the Bible is I just don't get it. I even had a humanities professor. This is humanities class. What are you supposed to talk about in humanities, right, in college? You know, like poems and that sort of stuff? I don't know. All this guy did was every day he would get up and he would, he was that professor that they warn youth group kids about that I never thought was real. This guy was at City College and he'd just rant and rant about um, uh, how dumb Christians are. And I remember at one point he even said something like, well, maybe there was a guy named Jesus who was killed for sedition at some point, and then this whole myth and this legend grew on top of it. But anybody that actually believes what the Bible says is an idiot, you know, and I was just sitting there. I was still at this point just kind of, I got saved sort of later in high school, right before I went to college. I didn't know. I wasn't going to argue with some dude. This is a very popular thing, right? Or I'll give you another quote. I have a few of these here. Uh, Richard Dawkins. You guys know Richard Dawkins? That guy does not like us. He wrote a whole bunch of books. One of them was called The God Delusion. And this is what he says. To be fair, much of the Bible is not systematically evil, but it's just plain weird, as you would expect of a chaotically cobbled... He likes... Okay, so Richard Dawkins really loves the thesaurus app in his, um, uh, in his Microsoft Word. He thinks it makes him sound really smart. Uh, you would expect of a chaotically cobbled together anthology of disjointed documents, composed, revised, translated, distorted, and improved by hundreds of anonymous authors, editors, and copyists, unknown to us, um, and mostly unknown to each other, spanning nine centuries. And then he goes on to say a bunch of really messed up stuff about how God's a you know, um, cosmic child abuser and all this other stuff. Um, anyway, Richard Dawkins, right? This is uh, one of my neighbors, actually, is a huge Richard Dawkins fan, right? When I, he was like, oh, when I first told him I'm a pastor, one of the first things he said to me was, oh, that's cool. I really like Richard Dawkins. I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> I guess that's the thing, you know? <laughs> um, I'll give you one more example. Okay, because it's my church. I can do whatever I want. Just kidding. 
Deep Space Nine, right? Who watches Deep Space Nine? Anybody but me? No? Okay. Yeah? Yeah, see? I know Steven knows what's up. Okay, so there's an episode where there's this guy, Star Trek, right? Uh, there's an episode where there's this guy who everybody thought was dead, and it turns out he's not dead. And he comes back, and while he was gone, he became this, like, legend on the, 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 um, the planet of Bajor, which is, like, this oppressed planet. He becomes this sort of figurehead. And everybody's worshiping him, basically, and he feels like a fake. And so uh, Commander Sisko, the guy in charge, tells him, uh, basically tells him, look, uh, it doesn't matter if the story's true as long as people hold on to the legend. And I'll read to you a little bit from the script. So the guy says, I don't remember the guy's name. I probably should have looked that up, right? Uh, he says, but I'm not the man that they think I am. And then Cisco says, perhaps not, but Bajor doesn't need a man. It needs a symbol, and that's what you are. No one's asking you to kill hundreds of Cardassians. That's the enemies. They look really weird, by the way. Uh, with your bare hands. I saw you in front of the crowd on the promenade. They look at you, and they see strength and honor and decency. They look at you, and they see the best in themselves. And the guy goes, but it's all based on a lie because the story about him that turned was not actually true, that everybody was passing around. And so Cisco says, no, it's not based on a lie, it's based on a legend. And legends are as powerful as any truth. Bajor needs that le legend, it needs you. Now that's what a lot of people think Christianity is. It's based off of some sort of a lie, the Bible is based off of some sort of a lie, and then this myth developed, and it doesn't matter if it's true, as long as you, know, you kind of got the legend and you know, the idea that Jesus taught is great. Well, here's the thing. I don't think that's true. Now, the history of Christianity is very important. More important, I think, also than other religions. Um, Christianity places a very special emphasis on the fact that the history that we're teaching is true. Think of some of the other religions. For example, Islam, right? The whole pinnacle of Islam is Muhammad going to Jerusalem uh, and then taking off uh, into heaven from where the Dome of the Rock is now, without getting into all of it. There is zero evidence that Muhammad ever was anywhere near Israel. Um, Historically, there's no evidence. And even Muslim scholars will say, we don't know what's going on, but there's no evidence. Or think of Mormonism, right, where um, Joseph Smith made up this whole religion so he could marry a bunch of little, no, I'm just kidding. Uh, he has this whole religion. It's like originally is pretty messed up what's going on, and he had these golden plates that were given to him. And at first, a lot of people didn't believe him, and he said, well, I've got these three witnesses to the, that saw the golden plates before, I forget what happened to them, before they were taken into heaven or something, I don't remember. Um, and so all three of those guys said, yeah, we saw him. And then later in life, all three of them recanted and said, well, I saw him with spiritual eyes, or no, I never saw him. You know, the whole thing that Joseph Smith was saying is, this is our history. The three guys who were supposed to corroborate that said, no, it's not true. Or uh, think of Buddhism, right? Most of the stuff in, um, about Buddha's life that we know are from a lot later and are myths. And to Buddhists, that's actually okay. They say, we don't care about his life so much. Siri, I'm not talking to you. Uh, we don't care about his life so much as the principles that he taught. It doesn't matter the details of his life. Only Christianity says this, that our faith is grounded in real history and that that real history matters. And if that real history is not true, then the whole faith doesn't make any sense and we should all go home. Right? Christianity is the only religion that comes along and says that. I'll read to you from 1 Corinthians. It says this, And if Christ has not been raised... This is Paul talking. So if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he, uh, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. So basically he says, if Jesus didn't really raise from the dead like all these people say he did, then we're wasting our time and actually we're not just being sort of neutral, we're being evil because we're misrepresenting God. Or look at what Kayla just read in that Pentecost sermon, right? 
uh, this section from Acts 2, where Peter says this, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God and with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. So here's the thing. Acts was written probably about 25 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus and after Pentecost happened, after that sort of month and a half there. Now, does that account that I just read sound like someone who's making up a legend or isn't really sure about the facts? I don't think it is. And these men really believed that God acted in real, actual history and that our entire faith rests upon that history. And so what we're going to do is, together, we're going to read the book of Luke, and we're going to read the whole book of Luke, and it's going to take forever. Uh, And in the book of Luke, Jesus walks on water, and he heals people, and he teaches. You know, Jesus, he does all this stuff. But before we jump into what did Jesus say, what did Jesus do, we need to stop, and we need to ask ourselves, can we have any idea what Jesus really did or said? And my answer to that is yes. And I think that we can, with enough certainty, to place our eternal destinies on this history right? History matters. This history matters enough that we can rest our entire souls on it. So let's get started with the book of Luke. Verse 1, we're going to read verses 1 through 4 today. He says, "...inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us." So the first thing he says is, Luke comes along and he says, people have already written some of this stuff down. Now, who is he talking about and what did they write down? Probably he's talking at least about the Gospel of Mark, But there were other um, people who had written down stuff about Jesus, um, but what we would say is none of that stuff was inspired by the Holy Spirit. That's why we don't have it in the Bible, right? And here we're not talking about the Gospel of Thomas, which you may have heard of, which was written hundreds of years later. But there were stories and oral traditions that were passing around before Luke got to what he was writing down. And so by the time Luke comes around, he's talking about now the things that have been accomplished among us. That word accomplished, right, um, is... Uh, In the NIV, it says the things that have been fulfilled. And here's the idea. He's saying Jesus wasn't just some dude who came along and got lucky and happened to fulfill some of the prophecies of the Messiah. What Luke is saying is that this history that I'm writing down that you're about to read uh, has a purpose to it, right? And that God is working in history, and he has a purpose. And that purpose, you can read about it all over the Old Testament. And God is sovereign in history, and he was guiding things to get to the point where Jesus would come along and act as the Redeemer. Jesus accomplished that purpose. So this isn't just some sort of random history. Like, I like reading uh, historical biographies. I just read one about Captain Cook. Do you guys know who that is? No? You should. He's a fascinating dude. Um, Or I read one about Napoleon and the Battle of Waterloo. Now, how does that really affect my life? Eh, I don't know. I don't know how to sail, and I'm not commanding armies at Waterloo or whatever. Uh, But this history, what he's saying is this history has a purpose, and that purpose applies to each and every one of us. This history matters. And so that's what he says, why he says among us. This history has created the people of God. This is what we're doing here. Church was not my idea, right? It was God's idea, and what Jesus accomplished created these churches and these communities of faith. And so Luke says that what's going on here is that There were real, actual people in these real, actual churches who saw the things that he's about to describe. And so he describes some of these guys next. Verse 2, he says, uh, let's see, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word uh, have delivered them to us. 
So he describes this group of people, and he calls them eyewitnesses and ministers of the word. And what he means by that, that's one group. There's not some were eyewitnesses, and then some were ministers of the word. I think that, that's one kind of group, these eyewitnesses and ministers of the word. Now, start, though, just talking about what, how does he describe them. The first thing he calls them is eyewitnesses, these people. Now, you may have heard this objection, right, like the one from my humanities professor, that this stuff developed over time, and maybe there was a guy named Jesus, but we can't prove that outside of the Bible, which also is not true. There's a whole bunch of extra historical evidence that Jesus really existed and walked around, and my humanities professor was an idiot. You know? <laughs> He's just trying to brainwash a bunch of 18-year-olds. Um, that's not true, first off. So, but is what we see here really what happened to Jesus? And so the objection is, and you may have seen this in stuff like the Da Vinci Code, um, it goes like this. There were a lot of stories about Jesus, and they were legends, and uh, all of them were passed along orally, and then a hundred or more years later, some people wrote them down, uh, and then 300 years later, some guys got together, and to consolidate power and to make sure nobody else controlled this religion, they decided which ones were true, and they picked these four, and they left the other ones on the cutting room floor because they didn't like what they said, you know, kind of stuff. That's sort of the objection. Well, here's what I think is the truth. There's a guy, his name was Richard Bachman, who in 2007, I think it was, he wrote a very monumental book in the world of biblical scholarship, and it's called Jesus and the Eyewitnesses, um, and that's it there. At the bottom of your, if you're following along in your app or whatever, uh, there's a link to this book if you want. It's kind of academic, but it's a fantastic book, and uh, we'll get into more of this later, but here's uh, kind of what happened. Here's, what, here's how the Gospels were written. Mark was probably written first sometime in uh, the mid-50s at the latest, maybe even earlier. So if you think about the timeline, Jesus died sometime in the 30s. Mark came along, and he wrote his book in the 50s. Then Luke came along and wrote his book probably right after Mark, mid-50s to early 60s. Matthew, nobody knows if it was right before Luke or right after Luke, but Matthew and Luke were written about the same time. And then John comes along uh, probably 20 or more years later, in the 90s, somewhere maybe even as late as 100 AD, and wrote the book of John. And so I'd, like, I'd encourage you to go read that Bachman book if you have time and you're interested. It's a super interesting book. But his main thesis is this, that the Gospels were written early enough uh, to have been written in the lifetimes of the people who lived these events. And he gets into how we know that that's true. I don't have time to do that in this sermon, but he gets into how we know that that's true. And he says this, uh, talking about these eyewitnesses. He says, look, you and I would understand uh, to some degree... Because we would say, if you're writing a history of a battle, and you found out that there were three surviving eyewitnesses to that battle, you would not feel you had written a good history unless you talked to all three of them. You would check everything uh, else that you heard by these eyewitnesses. And so what he's saying is that's what the Gospels are. They are a collection of stuff from these eyewitnesses. That's what Luke is claiming, that these eyewitnesses passed this stuff on to him who wrote it down. That's one generation, right? He is a second-generation Christian who is as old, though, I don't mean like age-wise, just he was not there, but he heard it from the people who were there. Now, think of it like this. Imagine for a second that I decided uh, I'm going to write a book about the life of John F. Kennedy, okay? And in that book, I put the book out. And in the book, I claimed that John F. Kennedy was shot in Dallas, but that he survived. And he finished out his presidency, and he lived into old age. Now, what would historians say if they came along and they saw my book? They would say, wow, this guy's an idiot, and they would be right. Uh, everybody would think, well, uh, we know where John F. Kennedy was buried. Uh, you'd all think I was nuts, because it's too soon, isn't it? 
people still remember where they were when JFK was shot. They remember how Lyndon Johnson became president. They remember the pictures of him taking the oath of uh, the oath um, in Air Force One with Jackie standing there covered in blood still in her pink uh, dress, right? We all remember that picture. Now here's the thing. John F. Kennedy was killed, I think it's 57 years ago. And it is still too soon, almost 60 years later, it's too soon for a myth to develop about John F. Kennedy. Right? That would take hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. It's too soon to change the story. Now, Mark wrote his gospel, and it was circulating in the mid-50s, about 20 years after the things that happened to Jesus happened, three times less. So that's like writing a book about how JFK was shot and survived in 1983, right? Would anybody have believed it? No. And so what we have here in the Gospels is these real actual eyewitnesses, but they were also spiritual leaders. He says that they were ministers of the word. So this adds another layer. They didn't just pass on information. They passed on the gospel story. And that gospel is the good news about how God has redeemed his people and how he changes lives. And that's what they're talking about when he says um, these uh, eyewitnesses and these ministers of the word, they delivered them to us. Now, this is one of those places where reading Greek is actually helpful. Um, you don't have to know Greek. My Greek sucks. I took it in seminary, and I forgot most of it, and I used the software to help me figure it out. Um, but here's the thing where the Greek is helpful. The Greek word is paradosis. Yeah, that's it, paradosis. Uh, my Greek teacher would be furious at how I just pronounced that, but let's pretend uh, she's not here. Um, now, delivered is actually a really good translation in English. It's what the word means, but it delivers some, uh, it misses some nuance. Uh, the word is actually a technical term for passing along eyewitness material orally down from one generation to another generation, but here's the key. This word means without changing it at all. So in this culture, this was a very common thing for rabbis to teach their students, and then for that student to pass that information on to the next generation of students, and if you changed it, man, you were in a lot of trouble. And so there's been a lot of scholarly research recently on this practice of paradosis, um, that says these disciples were really, really good at hearing their teachers, their rabbis like Jesus, committing those things to memory, um, and then passing it along without changing or embellishing it. Um, like I said, it was super against the rules to change something that your rabbi said. And so in our world of apps and TVs and YouTube and something called TikTok that I don't use, I don't know, it's like little videos, I think, right? We all have the attention spans of gnats. And... Uh, for us, imagining memorizing an entire teaching from a rabbi seems crazy. But for folks back then, they were actually really good at it. And Luke is claiming that what he's writing down here in the book of Luke is that. It's that paradosis, um, the passing on of that tradition. And again, he says that tradition was passed on to us, the community of faith. And so uh, continuing then verse 3, Luke is a part of that community. So let's talk about Luke for a sec. Look what he says in verse 3. Uh, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. Every time I hear somebody say most excellent, every time I read this, I think of, anybody know? Bill and Ted? Yeah? No? Anybody else know Bill and Ted? Excellent, right? The sequel's coming out. In a couple of months, that joke's going to be hilarious. <laughs> right? Most excellent Theophilus. Okay, so who was Luke? Let's talk about Luke for a sec. This is the only place in the gospel that he actually talks about himself, where he says, it seemed good to me. Um, Luke was a doctor, and doctors in the ancient world, don't think of doctors the way we have now. Um, medicine in the ancient world was pretty brutal, <laughs> um, and they didn't really know what they were doing, and they tried different things. And if you remember the story of the lady who 
uh, had the bleeding, and she touched Jesus' robe and feels better, and she's like, I tried every doctor, and I, was, I remember reading about that, and just some of the absolutely insane things that they probably did to this poor woman. Right, well, anyway, that was Luke. He was a doctor. Um, doctors also probably were slaves. They weren't, um, there were hardly any free doctors. So a doctor would be a doctor for a family or something like that. And so that's what we know about Luke. We also know he was a traveling companion of the Apostle Paul. Because as you read, Luke and Acts are um, kind of one book with two parts. So if you read the beginning of Acts, it sounds exactly like this. And so Luke is the beginning, Acts is the sequel. I wish, I don't know who picked the order of the books of the Bible, by the way. I wish we had done John first and then gone Matthew, Mark, Luke, Acts. I think that would have been dope. But anyway, that's not how it is. I called the ESV people and they hung up on me, so I don't know. (laughs) Not really. Um, So in the book of Acts, though, there's a whole bunch of sections where uh, Luke is writing that book and he says, oh, Paul did this, Paul did this. And then we almost sank in our ship. And I'm like, we? You know, because he was a traveling companion of Paul. And he, he was on that journey to Rome with Paul and he was a good uh, friend of Paul. So that's Luke. Who's he writing to? Well, he's writing to most excellent Theophilus. Now, Theophilus, what that means is the name actually means lover of God. Um, the title, most excellent, is something that was usually used of somebody very important. Uh, we see the same title used in Paul's trial. He calls one of the governors most excellent. Um, so who was this guy? Well, there's a few options, right? The first is he was somebody involved. Some people think he was involved in Paul's Roman trial. So the book of Acts ends with Paul sort of on trial in Rome, and we never find out what happens. And a lot of people think that's because Paul, uh, Luke wrote this whole book of Luke and Acts so that this guy, Theophilus, who was, had something to do with Paul's trial, would know what these Christians were all about. That's one option. I don't know where they got that from. Uh, the second option is he was just some other sort of important Roman official. Third option is, and I think this is, makes the most sense, um, is that he was a new believer and some sort of a patron of Luke. He may have even been Luke's slave master. And he, when he became a believer, Luke was a believer, and he sent Luke around to figure out all this stuff. Nobody knows for sure. I'm guessing it has something close to that last one. He was some sort of a believer who was a very important man, and maybe he was funding Paul's whole mission to write the book of Luke and Acts. Um, and so how did Luke then know what to write? So it's Luke, he's writing to Theophilus. How did he know what to write? Well, he says, I followed all things closely for some time past. Now, you know what that means, right? To follow something the way that Luke's talking about. It's the same way that I follow the giants, okay? You guys know about the giants? They stink right now. You know how I know? Because I follow the giants. And I wake up every morning and I flip over on my bed and I go, and I grab my phone and I turn it to the Reddit for the San Francisco Giants subreddit, and I'm like, wow, they still stink today, just like yesterday. And I read about all these, oh, that guy is a new player, and he stinks, and then there's this guy. And Okay, so that's what I do. I follow the Giants, and I think about the Giants all day, and I read news, and my phone pops up and says, hey, pff, here's about the Giants. And I take my laptop, and I go to the Giants games, and I sit up high, and I work, and I write sermons. I love the Giants, right? That's how Luke is saying. This, he follows the gospel the way that I follow the Giants. So it's too bad he's not your pastor. But anyway, um, <laughs> ooh, don't fall. So he, it says, what did he follow? He follows all things closely, right? So he's claiming a large base of knowledge, and he's claiming to be close to that base of knowledge. And um, he says he's done this from some time past. So for a while now, he's been following the gospel, and he's been taking notes. Uh, so this is his process. Luke, I think, was an investigative reporter, is what we would call it today. You guys know the Serial podcast? Did anybody else listen to that or see that? Um, it's hosted by Sarah Koenig. Koenig? There you go, Koenig. Uh, season one was about the arrest of Adnan Syed um, for a murder of 
Hamin Lee. If you, there's also a Netflix documentary to check out if you're into that sort of stuff. It's absolutely disturbing. But anyway, um, so how did she put this podcast together? Well, she was an investigative reporter. Uh, she went around, she interviewed a ton of people, she followed up on leads, she sat down, she recorded things, she took notes, and then she gathered it all together and put it together. And so uh, what, hap um, what happened in this murder? Did this guy actually commit the murder? Well, Luke did basically the exact same thing. He was the original serial podcast, right? What happened to Jesus' body? Well, let me tell you what I think, right? And he goes in, and the book of Luke and Acts is his report. And that's why he says, he wrote an orderly account. Now, this doesn't necessarily mean chronological, because there are some parts where we think he might have pulled something out of place. But for the most part, Luke is writing somewhat chronologically. John is not chronological at all. If you read the book of John, he's all over the place, and he's, he's writing themes and taking stories of Jesus and writing themes. But Luke claims to be uh, chronological. But here's the other thing. I think he interviewed specific people. I think Luke sat down with Mary. And he said, hey, what happened when Jesus was born? Especially if Luke was written before Matthew, I really think that that happened. What happened when Jesus was born? And then she goes, oh, let me tell you this story. I was sitting in my home, and his angel shows up, and I was like, what? <laughs> you know, and then she goes through the whole story. He has the most detailed account of Mary during the, uh, the infancy narrative. And I think he talked to other people, probably Cleopas and that other disciple on the road to Emmaus, and Mary Magdalene, and... Uh, but here's the thing, why go to all this trouble? This seems like a huge project. Luke traveled around for years, collecting information, writing all this stuff down. Well, verse 4, he tells us why he went to all this trouble. Look what he says. That you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. That's why. So that Theophilus, whoever you are, the um, patron or the, the, you know, this is why I think he was already a believer, right? The things that you have been taught. If he was the guy that decides if Paul gets executed, this sentence sounds a little weird. Um, but... Uh, the things that you have been taught, right, this gospel story that you have heard, uh, I want you to be certain about it. Now, again, Greek is not usually that important to read. Our English translations are pretty great. But here's the thing with Greek, let me tell you. Greek word order doesn't matter for sentence structure. You know, in English, uh, if, um, if I was going to say, uh, let's say, uh, John hit, oops, well, that's loud. John hit Stephen, right? Because my name's first, I'm the one doing the hitting, Stephen's the one getting hit, we flip that. Stephen hit John, it's the other way around. But in Greek, uh, that's not how it works. And you emphasize things by putting phrases at the beginning or the end of a sentence. And at the end of this sentence, this, his whole introduction, the very last thing that you read in Greek is this word certainty of these things. Because this is the most important thing. This is why Luke is writing, because he wants Theophilus to be absolutely sure of what's going on. Here's my question, though. This book was written 2,000 years ago. Can we be sure? Right? Can we be Theophilus? Well, here's the thing. I think there are reasons that we can trust the gospel. And I'm going to go through these a lot faster than I planned on um, so that we get out of here before tomorrow. Right? Um, so the first, <laughs> let me give you a few of these reasons. The first reason is what we call manuscript evidence. Um, these documents that we have here, uh, here's the challenge. You hear from people, okay, well, Luke wrote this down. Maybe he knew what he was talking about. But then Luke... Somebody took that, because we don't have the original one that Luke wrote. So then somebody took that and copied it, and then somebody else copied it, and then somebody else copied it. And so the version we have probably doesn't make any sense. And you, the, the example that people use is, it's like the game telephone. Do you remember that when you were a kid? Like, uh, uh, you know, blah, 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 you know, something, I don't know, what's a phrase? Something bananas or whatever. And it gets to the end, and then somebody goes, oh, bananas, purple monkey dishwasher. And you're like, where did that come from, right? Everybody changed it a little along the way. That's a Simpsons joke, by the way. Changed it along the way until it comes out purple monkey dishwasher. Well, here's the thing. That really doesn't 
break down because we don't, for a few reasons, uh, that really doesn't make sense for a few reasons. Because we don't have one line of the Gospel of Luke, right? We have more lines of these ancient books in the New Testament than any other ancient book in the world. And so we have tons of early, early manuscripts. And there's actually a manuscript, if you want to write this down, if you're taking notes, Google this later. It's called P52. I want to see this someday. I forget where it is. It's in England or Ireland or somewhere. I don't know. Um, it's this tiny little fragment of the Gospel of John that was written less than 30 years after the original Gospel of John. So we have one fragment that was probably a first-hand copy of the Gospel of John. Right? So the game telephone, we don't have that person at the end of the game of telephone, right? We have the first person that heard before it becomes purple monkey dishwasher. But also, we have a ton of these lines going through. And so what they can do is there are mistakes in some of these things, but we can compare the thousands and thousands of these manuscripts that we have. And it's very easy to decide which one is right. If nine of them say one word and one of them says the other, you know it's probably these nine. So we can trust, okay, the Bible hasn't changed. But here's some of the other reasons why I think we can trust the Gospels. Like I said, the Gospels, I already went over this one. They were written too early. There are parts in the Bible where they name people. Um, there's a section, I didn't write this down, I forget. There's a section where, um, I think the guy's name is Rufus. Isn't that from Bill and Ted also? Anyway, uh, <laughs> yeah, somebody nodded, yes. Um, the guy named Rufus, and they were like, oh, that's um, the guy who carried the cross, uh, Simon. That's his kid. Now, why would you mention these people's names? Because what's happening is they're saying, if you don't believe me, just go talk to these guys, right? They were there. So there's specific names of people mentioned. Um, there's examples of uh, these very early hymns, like in the book of Colossians. It was probably a very early hymn where, where they're worshiping Jesus as God. So people come along and say, well, they didn't worship Jesus as God until a lot later. But the truth is, the very earliest stuff that we have is them worshiping Jesus as God. Um, the other re I'll give you another reason here is the Gospels are not flattering. All right, so we have manuscript evidence, we have they're written too early, and they're not flattering. If you're going to make up a religion where you are basically in charge of that religion, you're going to pull a Joseph Smith. And you're going to say, this is how great I am, and I found these tablets and all this stuff, and I spent the time translating these tablets, or like Muhammad did a lot of this too. This is what you're going to do. You're not going to write what we see in the Gospel, is um, that... You're not going to see the, the leader of your religion, right? Your, your God, Jesus, falling apart in agony in the Garden of Gethsemane, right before he has to do what he's about to do. You wouldn't put that in there. You'd put he's confident and he's ready, you know. Or you wouldn't, in the ancient world, you wouldn't make women the first witnesses to the resurrection. In the ancient world, women were not allowed to testify in court because they were considered so uh, unworthy or, you know, uh, unreliable or whatever. They just had such a low view of women. And then... You read the Gospels, and who are the first people to find out that Jesus is alive and then go tell everybody? is a bunch of women. It doesn't make any sense in the ancient world. Um, or then you just have the disciples. If you read, as we read the book of Luke, you're going to read about these guys, right? Peter is constantly putting his foot in his mouth. I say he has foot-in-mouth syndrome. He always says the stupidest thing that you could possibly say at any moment. And then Peter's big, the pinnacle of his time is a disciple of Jesus, where he can finally, you know... Show Jesus he really cares. He denies him three times and he runs away crying. Now, I don't know about you, but if I was going to write a book and make up a religion, I wouldn't make myself a, a crybaby who always says the stupidest thing that I could possibly say. Right? I'm going to be awesome, right? This is, John did this and whatever. So they're not flattering. Here's the other one. They're too detailed. If you know anything about ancient works, they weren't written like this. Um, 
when they made up stories. Go read the Odyssey and then compare it to the scriptures. Look at this is what it says here in just the next part we're going to get started reading. Luke 1 5. He says, In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah, the division of Abijah. He had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. That sounds like he probably knows what he's talking about. Like he's not trying to make that up. These are very specific people. Or in Luke 2 1. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. Do you see that? Luke is placing these things in a historical timeline, and he's saying this is when this stuff actually happened. He's giving these details. Now, one of my favorite authors, C.S. Lewis, and we have one of his books back there on the shelf if you want to grab one. Um, he was a professor of medieval and Renaissance literature. We know him for Narnia and all these Christian books that he wrote. But if you go to Europe, everybody knows him as this sort of professor of medieval literature. And um, in our modern stories, the way we write things, if you read, what was the book you had me read? Sanderson? Is that a guy? Yeah, Sanderson. It's pretty dope, by the way. I've got to get the next one from you. He's writing very detailed things in his books, these fantasy books. That's not how they wrote those sort of things back in the day. There was history, and that was detailed, and then there were these fables and tales, and those were not very detailed. And so Lewis says this. I have a couple of quotes here. He says, I've been reading poems, romances, vision, literature, legends, and myths all my life. I know what they're like. I know, that, um, I know that not one of them is like this. He's talking about the New Testament. Of this text, there are only two possible views. Either it is reportage or else some unknown writer in the second century without known predecessors or successors suddenly anticipated the whole technique of modern novelistic, realistic narrative. The reader who doesn't see this simply has not learned to read. Right? I like that. From a medieval... Part of that's how he became a believer, was reading some of this stuff. Or he says this, specifically about the Gospels, uh, all I am in private life is a literary critic and historian, and that's my job. And I'm prepared to say that on that basis, if anyone thinks the Gospels are either legends or novels, uh, then that person is simply showing incompetence as a literary critic. I've read uh, many great novels, and I know a fair amount about the legends that grew up among the early people. And I know perfectly well that the Gospels are just not that kind of stuff. So this is, uh, there's another quote there you can read that later on. But Lewis is basically saying, this doesn't make any sense. The, the way that these books are written are way too detailed to have been just kind of made up. And then the last one, and we're, I'm not really going to talk about this today, there are a ton of lines of evidence that the resurrection really happened. Okay? And so um, in the ancient world, everybody agreed the tomb was empty. That was not a debatable fact. Jesus' followers, and the people who hated Jesus. The tomb was empty. Now, the question is, what do we do with an empty tomb? How did it happen? Right? So there's a few options. One of them um, is uh, the swoon theory. Right? Jesus didn't die. He, just, you know, he was really messed up on the cross, and then he woke up and walked out of the tomb. Well, the problem with that is, this is probably one of the more popular theories. The problem with that is, okay, well, if, you've ever, if you know anything about the way Romans flogged and crucified people, to show up two days later and convince everybody that he was God is like pretty much a stretch. You guys remember when I crashed my bike a while ago and I tore the inside of my foot apart like a cheese grater and I was hobbling around and crying about everything and nobody thought I was God, you know, that's just my foot, right? They did that to his whole body. And then how does he move the rock? How do, you know, there's, it, does, it falls apart. Or maybe the disciples stole the body to gain power. Well, the problem with that is none of them gained power. They all died uh, being tortured to death, and while they died being tortured to death, not one of them said, oh, I made the whole thing up, stop torturing me. Okay, you get 12 guys together, make up a story, and then you torture them all to death, I guarantee one of them is going to break, and that one would be me, <laughs> you know, if I learned anything from my foot. 
Um, now, there's a lot of other evidence, right? There's the eyewitness evidence to the resurrection where Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, look, there were hundreds of people that saw this happen. If you don't believe me, just go ask them. And he lists a few names, right? Um, or every other movement in the ancient world that uh, started like this and then they killed the leader, it all just died out. Christianity is the only one that said, no, our guy's alive. And he's still here and he has risen from the dead. So there's a lot of evidence, I think, to prove that the Gospels make sense. Now, let's apply this then. I don't know everybody here, so every week when I stand up in front, you know, I know most of you kind of, but, you know, I don't know. I'm going to assume that there's three types of people in the, the congregation, right? The first is pretend followers of Jesus, the Pharisees, modern Pharisees, and they're everywhere, right? The wheat and the tares, Jesus called them. And so I'm going to plead every week with you to give up your idols and turn to the actual Jesus. Then we have genuine followers of Jesus, what we're going to try to do is try to guide you into how to be a better follower of our king. And hopefully you're going to leave here every week more amazed by the gospel than you were when you came in. And then the third group is people who are not followers of Jesus but are at church and they're thinking about their life and what they're up to. And I'm hoping we'll be inviting a lot of these people into our group. And this is what I'm excited about, is people who are interested in the faith. And so for you folks, I'll try to be clear and knock down misconceptions about Christianity, and hopefully leave you with something to think about. So let's start with that last group, the unbelievers, right? The people who are not followers of Jesus. There's a, a, a religious scholar. I don't know, he's confusing. I looked his picture up. I think he's a white guy, but he was born in China, and now he lives in, he works at Berkeley. Um, his name is uh, Houston Smith, Huston Smith. And basically, he came along and he said this. Look, there's only two people in the history of the world that made everybody around them ask, not just who are you, but what are you? know what I mean by that? And so he said those two people were Jesus and Buddha. And what he says is this. Buddha basically came along and said, absolutely don't worship me. Don't do it. I'm not a god, but follow my example. And the historical data, like I said, about even the life of Buddha is way later, and most of it is probably made up and unreliable, and Buddhists don't really care about that. That's okay. Uh, it's mostly myth. Well, Jesus, the account of Jesus is the polar opposite of the account of Buddha, Right? Some scholars believe that what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15 was very, a part of a very early creed of the Christian faith about the resurrection. And so right away, the people around him were worshiping him as God. The people who knew him did this. Think about that for a sec. What would it take for you to worship me as God? Right? It would take a lot. Or think about this even more. Jesus' little brother worshiped him as God. What would it take for you to worship your brother or sister as God? I tell you, I know my brothers, it's not going to happen. Um, less than 20 years after his life on earth, his death and resurrection, Jesus' followers were writing this story down at a point when everybody around them could still contradict it. And in that story, he's healing people, he's doing miracles, he's feeding 5,000, he's bringing people back to life. You know, Lazarus come forth, all that stuff. And none of his opponents at the time said, oh, he didn't do any of that stuff. Right? They said, oh, he did, but he was working for the devil. They couldn't deny what was going on. And here's the kicker. This guy, Jesus, he claimed to be God himself, and he accepted worship from the people around him. That is a huge claim. And so now you may be thinking, okay, well, he said all this stuff about the Bible and this evidence and all this other stuff, but there's people who are a lot smarter than me that, didn't really, that don't believe this. Richard Dawkins, uh, Stephen Hawking, Thomas Jefferson, right? So I'll just trust those guys. I bet that they have thought it all the way through, and they still don't believe. Well, Tim Keller said this. Um, he said, friends, the magnitude of Jesus' claims and the magnitude of his impact uh, show you, you better not just uh, doubt that he's not God, you better know that he's not God. 
So here's my challenge to you. First is spend time in the book of Luke with us and look into it. Have an actual open mind. Start here. I don't know, but maybe this makes sense. Does it make sense? Does Christianity work? Is it really grounded in history? Um, don't take the easy way out and leave these questions of faith for somebody else uh, for a later time. And so as you join us in the book of Luke, I want you to ask these three questions about the Christian faith. The first is, is it beautiful? Right? Because I think as you look into it, if you're not a believer, Christianity probably isn't what you think it is. You know? uh, the second thing is, is it good? Does it work? Uh, look at how the Christian faith speaks into our world and is, uh, can be applied today. And then the third thing is, is it true? Right? Who cares if it's beautiful? Who cares if it works if it's not true? Um, because here's what I think you'll find. The gospel is beautiful. It's an amazing story. It's a better story than anyone you've ever heard. It's a better story than what you're living, the narrative in your life you're living. It is good. Right? It works because our faith comes from a real creator who knows how people are supposed to live. But it's also true. Right? There is a narrative, there is a true narrative out there. That this is the way the world really works. And people try to grab onto it. And what I'm telling you is I think Christianity is the truest story. It is the story that connects to the way that things really are. And so uh, next then is the believers and the Pharisees, right? The fake believers. Being open-minded and challenging your assumptions is not just for unbelievers, for people who are not followers of Jesus. It makes me sad that a lot of followers of Jesus in our nation, they care more about being right uh, than believing the truth. You know what I mean by that? I'd rather win the argument and be wrong than actually believe the truth. And that drives me nuts, um, that not thoughtful church people. So if you really do care about the truth, you'll take this book that God has given us, and you'll take the brain that you have in your skull, and you'll move your life towards the direction of truth. First Peter says this, and Peter says this in his epistle. He says, But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet, do it with gentleness and respect. So many followers of Jesus can't do either of those two things. They can't give an actual reason for why they believe, and they sure can't do it with gentleness and respect. We are known for being dumb and harsh when we should be known for being wise and loving. So as we read this book, maybe let's try the other way, right? Let's try to be wise and loving. Let's let the book of Luke challenge us in what we believe. And so as we read the book of Luke together, here's three questions for followers of Jesus as we read. The first is, is this the Jesus that I think I know? Right? A lot of times we're going to come across something and we're going to find out Jesus was a lot more Jewish than you thought he was. And he's going to say some things that don't make sense in our Western context. You know why? Because he wasn't a white Swedish guy uh, who lived in the 1800s, right? He was a first century Near Eastern Jewish man uh, who also happened, you know, was the redeemer. Second thing is, how does Jesus challenge the way that I view the world? Okay? I think a lot of us have worldviews that are built on something besides the gospel. And we think, oh, this political worldview is the way the world actually works. And so what we need to do is read the book of Luke and say what the book of Luke and what the Holy Spirit is telling us is here and everything else is down here. And we need to let him shape our worldview and the way that we look at the people around us. And the third thing is, am I living like I actually believe what I'm reading? You know, what would, you, what would your life look like if you actually believed what Kayla, wrote in, uh, what Kayla read in Acts chapter, not wrote, uh, read in Acts chapter 2? and the falling of the Holy Spirit. How would that challenge us as a church together? And so because, here's the thing, here's the idea. Jesus really did live. His followers really wrote this stuff down, and they really believed the gospel enough to uh, 
die for it so that one day you would have access to all the facts of the life of Jesus. And so to set the tone for our new church plant, right, our new church startup, this is the kind of people that I want us to be. Wholly obsessed with our King Jesus and with the story of his gospel, right, the good news of how he became a man, uh, lived the life that we could never live, died the death that we could never die, to redeem his people and bring them into a recreated heaven and earth. So what we're doing here on Sunday mornings together is putting our entire lives on top of that truth, and we're just saying what we're doing is just a glimpse of what eternity is going to be like. We really believe that we're headed there. We really believe the things that Jesus has done. Amen?